Welcome to the West Steps. The West Steps is a podcast from the Colorado Children's Campaign that explores issues that impact Colorado kids and families. I'm your host, Beza Thedes. Welcome to another episode of the West Steps. Um, I am truly excited for this conversation. It's not a new one for um, the West Steps. School finance is a very hard of some of the conversations we have. And I'm really excited for today's guest. And I'm going to let them introduce themselves and maybe less you can start. Yeah, I'm, I'm Leslie Caldwell. I'm the vice president for education initiatives at the Children's Campaign. But our real special guest is... <laughs> I'm, I'm George Welsh, and uh, I'm sort of in between roles. Uh, I've actually just wrapped up a 25-year career as superintendent of school uh, school districts in Colorado, uh, once uh, for a chunk of 18 years in center in the San Luis Valley, and uh, currently wrapping up seven years in Canyon City, um, Colorado. Um, but, but I am going to continue working in education in uh, ways that support the development of leadership and and, uh, and other things moving forward. Well, thank you both for um, making the time. Um, you two are experts in this, and some of us have know very little about school finance. So maybe you can uh, give us a quick recap and over, an overview of how local property tax investment is and and school uh, finance formula are connected, and and also. Uh, what does that mean then at the uh, at you know district level? Do we see differences? Is it working well? We have no problems. We can wrap up this podcast in two minutes. Yeah, I'll take a stab at that, Beza. So um, property tax is the first source of funding for K-12 education uh, through what's called a total program mill levy. Um, and so this is the base tax rate that is levied at a local level um, by school districts. And the state looks at what um, what's the amount of property tax revenue that's raised locally through that total program mill levy. And then there's a constitutional requirement for the state to backfill the difference between that amount and what the school funding formula says a district should be spending to educate kids. Um, And so that backfill amount or what we call the state share of school finance comes from other taxes collected at the state level, like income and sales tax. But really the first source of funding for K-12 education is property tax. Mm. Um, And then, yeah, and, and, and maybe I'll just make a distinction right away between, you know, there's that base tax rate. And I think what we're talking about today are mill levy overrides. Um, And so when a school district wants to spend more revenue than they are required to spend on students by our school funding formula, um, the district must seek approval from its voters to raise what are called mill levy overrides. Um, And so these are additional dollars that stay in the district they don't affect the amount of state funding that a school district receives. Mm. It's funding that's just purely supplemental to help students. And, you know, so you'll see school districts go to their voters to raise override dollars for things like increasing teacher pay, purchasing new curriculum, investing in technology updates. Um, 
But, you know, then at the same time, because we've had state funding reductions for more than the last decade, we also know that a lot of districts are really relying on Millevi overrides purely to offset funding cuts that have happened at the state level. Um, so, you know, it is it's the supplemental funding source, but in many cases, um, it's just being used to cover the basics, sort of. Mm-hmm. And George, maybe you have a perspective on how this is um, showing up in different school uh, districts. Yeah, and I, I'm glad that uh, Leslie spoke to the um, reduction in funding that has occurred in education um, since the passage of Amendment 23, which um, was uh, an attempt to promise uh, a, a an increase in funding for a number of years, I think it was 10, and then an inflationary increase uh, each year after that. And what happened when the Great Recession hit um, in the late um, aughts, um, the state of Colorado Im- uh, imposed a new measure within the finance formula. And that at that time was called the negative factor is here's all the funding you should get. And now so that we can make ends meet with the state budget, we're going to cut so much out of each of your budgets um, through equalization. And several things happen with that is if you get more state equalization than um, another school district, your negative factor was a, a deeper cut because you're not providing locally based on property wealth. Uh, the bulk of your of your state funding. Um, the other aspect uh, of that was that while these cuts were made, uh, many districts were able to backfill those cuts by going to their voters, asking locally for the voters to uh, pass a mill override. And it would seem at first blush that, well, that's just a matter of whether the local community has an appetite to pay more uh, taxes um, for its uh, education system. And maybe it's a reflection of the education system locally that whether the taxpayers trust them with that money or not. But but the reality is for some school districts and one that I was in for 18 years, uh, Center Colorado, um, a one mil increase um, or a some I think it's something like a 16 mil increase is, is what the uh, when I was there in center could be the maximum mill override would only have brought in something like three hundred thousand dollars per year because property value in that school district per student is much lower there than in some other places in Colorado, depending on the district. And and I, I think the stark contrast is some school districts, by raising their um, by asking for a one mill override, can get more than three thousand dollars per student contributed to that. And some school districts by asking for a three mil override can only get about a one mil override can maybe only get about a hundred dollars per student. Um, And that once again, comes down to um, mainly what their assessed valuation is in that community per child. Um, And um, in fact, what the state of Colorado, state of Colorado recognizes at some level that um, the amount of property value you have in a school district does matter um, 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 through a lawsuit that occurred. Um, it was either like in the late 1990s or the early aughts. 
Um, the state actually settled out of court um, the Giardino lawsuit saying, yeah, we have set up a system that's inequitable um, as far as schools doing construction projects, because uh, what what school districts don't do as far as um, major facility upgrades, maintenance, building new schools, they don't use their operation dollars to do that. There's just not enough there. Um, when you don't even bring in, uh, well, for example, in, in Canyon City, our annual budget's about $30 million. A new high school would probably cost us $90 million. You're not gonna save up enough money <laughs> Uh, over any length of time to just suddenly build a new high school, especially with inflation going. So what you do is you go to your voters and you ask them to, to, to vote on a bond measure, which would raise their mill locally so that you can then garner the money to build a new school. Well, in um, Canyon City, Colorado, it would be illegal to build a new high school um, because we don't have enough taxing capacity to do that. Um, yeah. Communities all over the state are like that. But what did the state do? The state actually created, I think, a model program in the country called Building Excellence Schools Today. And what they did with that is they looked at your local property um, wealth um, and and your ability to um, um, raise income through a bond process and whatever you come up short, um, so long as you have a compelling argument for need and a good plan to execute, um, they will offer matching funds uh, on top of what you can collect locally so you can do major construction projects, including building new schools. And, and I'll give you one example of that. When I was in center, um, we had the capacity to raise, I think, $4.5 million by maxing out our bond 16 mil increase. Um, we had facilities needs that totaled $31 million. Mm. It was illegal to to bring our facilities up to code, even if our voters wanted to vote. Yes, it was illegal in Colorado for them to bring them up to code. But through the Building Excellent Schools Today program, we were actually able to apply for funds to go on top of the four point five million dollars um, we could um, 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 tax our community on to do. And so so the community willingly raised um, its mills, 16, 16 of them, no, not many. Um, um, school districts in Colorado through an override or a bond would would vote for a, a 16 mil increase um, mm -hmm. to pay for it. But but the community saw it being worth it because the state was willing to pit, chip in twenty six million dollars on top of it. And they built a new school in center. It opened in 2012, I think, and it'll last um, um, that community for the next 50 to 80 years. Mm -hmm. So uh, you touched on this quite a bit, and I wonder if you can say more. So schools are school districts are going to their voters to raise something over the base of what they're required to care for, because the cost of um, running a school and providing a high quality education is more expensive than what the formula allows. So and then we've gotten to this point where, you know, not every property in the entire state is valued at the same uh, at the same rate, which means some communities can raise more and then others. So how is it playing out other than, you know, you mentioned the ability to build new schools or to do facilities upgrade. How else is showing up by students? Is there differences in the quality of education we see from students in one dist district as opposed to another? Yes. Yeah, so, so I think I can illustrate um, 
the situation when I got here in Canyon City in 2015. I left a high poverty district and center um, that had just built a new school and had been investing its dollars the best it could through grant acquisition and uh, regular finance. So uh, when I left center, we had a one-to-one device program. Every um, student K-12, and it was just about 700 of them, and every staff member had a, a technology device, and we'd been doing it for five or six years by that, right? I get to Canyon City, and Canyon City is a floor-funded district. It doesn't have a lot of um, local property wealth. It has a very conservative um, um, voter base. And uh, and Canyon City had failed before on a mill override. And by the way, at the time when I get to Canyon City, in at that time, probably a $28 million budget, $2.5 million um, had been taken away through that negative factor now called double budget stabilization factor. So $2.5 million underfunded. I was appalled when I got here in terms of how far behind we were on technology. And so I started asking the questions, how can we start putting devices in kids' hands? And the fact of the matter was there's no way. There's no way with our operating dollars if we're going to try to maintain a decent staff level with a tolerable, you know, class size um, uh, matter. And and if we're going to maintain the buildings, which were falling apart because uh, they had not passed a bond issue since 2003, um, we needed to find more dollars somewhere just to do technology. And thank God we did. In 2017, we um, passed a mill override, our first mill override ever for our district. And uh, Leslie will tell you, there's at least 30 districts, maybe more, who've never passed a mill override because the value in dollars is just not there. Our mill override was for $1.385 million, which, I mean, barely cut our budget stabilization factor, negative factor in half, right? I mean, didn't even make up for that. Mm -hmm. But what we were able to do with that is put a modicum amount of money, $350,000 for a staff of 600 towards salary increases. We put um, out of that uh, pretty close to uh, $800,000 a year toward technology. And thank goodness, because that was 2017. By the time the pandemic hit, we had a one-to-one device program in our district, but we were still doing that on really $1.2 million less per year than we should have just basically been funded by the state of Colorado and wouldn't have otherwise had to go to our community to try to make up that that difference. But even by going to our community and making up that difference, um, we had to find a level of extra support that was tolerable considering all we could pull together um, through through a, a mill increase. Mm-hmm. Mm, maybe just to put like some other numbers around this, like zooming out a little bit, George already mentioned, you know, this, this wild range that we have in what one mill can raise and, and really actually at the low end of that range, one mill in a district raises $15 per student. And at the high end, we have a district where it raises more than $5,000 per student for the same one mill. Um, It's insane. Uh, And then, you know, just to put some other numbers around what this looks like at the state level, the amount, the total amount of override funding that's been approved locally by by voters has more than doubled in a decade. So, you know, going back to 2010, it was about $580 million statewide. 
This year, it's more than $1.4 billion statewide. So it's a, it's a significant amount of money that is being generated by local voters. Um, but the problem with that is that we know that not all students are benefiting equitably from that. So we actually have 64 districts out of 178 that have no local mill levy override dollars. Okay, so in those 64 districts, no additional revenue to benefit kids. And then we have some districts where, um, you know, it's about 10 districts where they have more than $3,000 per student. And so it is this sort of growing inequity problem that we're seeing um, through Millevi Override specifically. Mm. So we, we see very few school districts who have quite a lot of resources. And over the years, that resources statewide has grown. But the number of districts who don't benefit from that is, has relatively stayed the same. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and you know, it's it's true. The two things that you need are you need willing voters who are willing to pass a tax increase. And so that's its own challenge in some parts of the state. But really, that second piece around having real property value, you know, that is when you raise a mill, it's actually going to be worth the while for, for the investment that you can make in kids. And we just have some communities where that is not the case. They're always going to struggle with that second piece. Mm. Yeah, I'm I'm fascinated by the fact that uh, uh, adult adults are uh, making decisions because I think at the end of the day, like right, we have you know about ten school districts that have a lot of resources. Those decisions are made by adults about you know what are they willing to pay in property taxes, but the impact of this inequity is significantly felt by kids who have no say in the matter, right? Like no say in the structure of this, Um, you know, and it's not, you know, we don't live in so much isolation that like you can't see what's happening a couple of districts down the road from you where like you see these inequities, you know, uh, it's always fascinating to me that we kept this system going for for quite a while. I guess if you, don't mind, if you don't mind me interjecting yeah. about that, what kids see, it's mm-hmm. it's it's a fact of the matter. When I uh, let's just talk on the facilities end, which which best has um, addressed when we used to take our kids to um, various experiences around the state to other school districts from center. And they were living in a 1918 facility that, you know, uh <laughs> by all means could have been condemned if it didn't have to operate as a school. And they would walk into these brand new schools being built all over the state, mainly in communities in which they had enough property um, wealth to tap into to do that. Um, but boy, I would have conversations with them on the, on the bus ride home, you know, about what, what they saw and why can't we do that in our community and, uh, never so sad a heart, uh, in my career than to just say, well, it's just because of where we live and the way the system's set up. And then when best, best address that now you can drive through the San Luis Valley, uh, in Colorado right now, and you can't hardly, uh, not bump into a school that's been constructed since 2010, you know, mm-hmm. It's it's completely transformed that uh, whole region of the state, and I know it's uh, gone out uh, further over other regions. And and I and what I would tell you is, I think if you wanted to do to design an inequitable system really effectively to be really effectively inequitable, I, I would design exactly what we have in Colorado. The money stays where the money is. Yeah. Yeah. Or through the Regular Finance Act, and then through this 
fat, the only way you can really supplement it is through the smell override process. Do you want to keep the rich places rich? You do this. Yeah. Um, so I wonder what what solutions are um, are we seeing at the state level right now, and and what is their ability to to get at some of these inequities that we are talking about? Yeah. So. Um, I would say in large part because of George beating the drum on this issue for the last decade plus. Uh, We are really excited to see that legislators this year introduced um, Senate Bill 202, which, um, you know, what this bill would do is carve out a state investment in some of our lowest property wealth, lowest income communities, um, the ones that will always struggle for adequate funding to meet student needs. Um, and so what the bill does is create a um, what's called a mill levy override match fund that will recognize local investments that have been made in low wealth communities um, through an approved mill levy override. And then they the state will meet that effort with a state match on kind of a sliding scale that's dependent on local property wealth and, and local median income. Um, you know, George already talked a lot about the best program, which I think is sort of a um, model for this, this type of state investment. Um, it's been wildly successful. And so, um, yeah, we're, we're really excited about Senate Bill 202. Mm. Yes. If you don't yeah, mind me chiming in, Leslie, yeah. I, it's, it, I actually shared with Leslie a video shot of me. I think it was in 2000. 12. Um, it was at the time where we were kind of pushing for Amendment 66 to pass. That was sort of the reaction to the Lobato v. Colorado um, lawsuit decision and then having it swept away by um, um, the state Supreme Court. Um, having defined our, our our finance system in Colorado for education as uh, inequitable. Um, um, you know, I I, I um, I theorized the possibility of doing something for mill levies, uh, um, um, the same as we've done with best for, for facilities, but it's really Senator Rankin, um, who I think it, Leslie maybe goes back four years ago where he, he, he was saying, Hey, we don't have a negative factor in Colorado, uh, because all these local mill overrides pass to backfill the negative factor. And it has, if, as Leslie has said, as one point, whatever billion dollars extra funding comes Coming in through mill overrides, in essence, there's no negative factor. But what what was became stark um, for um, Senator Rankin was he then realized that oh, this money is not being distributed equitably around the state. That $1 billion backfill to the negative factor is going to specific school districts uh, and specific kids. And so there's been some champions, uh, including uh, he. And uh, is it Representative Eskar, um, Leslie, who, who, who've kind of started to take this forward? Uh, it's actually Senator Rankin and Senator Zenzinger are sponsoring it in the, um, in the Senate. So they're, they're our champions. Zenzinger, thanks. That's that's very exciting. I, I'm glad that it's finally um, seeing light and, and hopefully we get to pass it this year. I wonder what you envision are some of the, as we wrap up, some of the long-term solutions are here um, because I feel like that's getting out at some of the things, but it's not probably getting at all of the things. Um, so what are some long-term solutions do you see about how we fund our schools and how to make that very equitable? 
Yeah, either of you can jump in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is a this is sort of a really um, we see this MLO match fund as a really targeted investment that will make a huge difference. I think for kids um, in some of our lowest wealth communities, it doesn't solve the larger problem of what our our funding formula looks like. And in fact, Millevi overrides. You know, like we said, it's completely outside of the funding formula, and so there's still a lot of work to do um, to to make that more equitable. We talk a lot about how, you know, currently we spend three times more on our cost of living factor in the formula than we do on our at-risk factor. And so, you know, essentially what that means is we send three times more money to communities where it's expensive to live, um, which for the most part tend to be some of our most affluent communities. Um, and we send three times more to those communities than we do to our communities who are serving um, a high percentage of kids living in poverty, which we think is completely backwards. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, I, I would just throw out a lot of work to do on the formula. And George, I know you agree with that and and probably have even more to say about it. Yeah, they, the um, if you're if you want to be a, a historian of the school finance formula in Colorado, the one we currently have is far better than the one that existed in the early 1990s. Um, it, there, there are it, it did take into account categoricals such as special education kids, English language learners, you know, kids from poverty. However, that's defined, and that's uh, that's a big help. Yet, if you ask my opinion in terms of school finance, the biggest inequity. Um, when it's paired with the system we have where the only way you can get more is to get v- uh, local voters to approve more, um, that that the, um, the, the cost of living factor is the biggest inequity we have because where the cost of living factor benefits a school district where they get more dollars per kid than another school district that has a low cost of living factor. And why do they have a low cost of living factor? Because there's not a lot of property wealth in their district. The district that can most afford to pass an override to pay their staff more is already getting more in base funding. <laughs> so they sort of don't even have to do that. Yeah. And so but then they still have the capacity to pass overrides to do more for their kids. So we're fueling um, their circumstance in which they're an expensive place to live because they have a lot of property wealth. And then they easily get to tap into that property wealth and build Taj Mahal schools <laughs> and, and offer programs that I can only um, imagine in a rural setting in Colorado. Yeah. Well, um, thank you both so much for making the time. And I am very sure that this is not the last time we'll talk about school finance and on the podcast, but I just wanted to say thank you so much for making the time and making this very complicated uh, process very clear. And um, thank you for being here. Thanks, Beza. And thank you, George, for for joining us and, um, you know, just providing important examples of what this actually looks like on the ground for kids. Thanks for inviting me. And I don't know what will become of this particular year's legislative battle, but I can't tell you how thrilled I am that at the state level, we're talking about this in a deep fashion right now, because once you learn about it, uh, I think the only conclusion you can come to is, hey, we got to fix this. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you all so much. Thank 
Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of The West Steps. The West Steps is a production of the Colorado Children's Campaign. If you want to support our work, please visit our website at coloradokids.org. And see you next week. Thank you.